Hello, I'm John Fricke, and I'm very grateful to MGMUA Home Video for the invitation to watch The Wizard of Oz along with you, and to tell you a little about the making of the film, about its cast and staff and crew, and about its history as the most widely seen and probably best-loved motion picture of all time. You'll already have heard the basic story behind Oz and Jack Haley Jr.'s documentary which accompanies this laser package, but I'll try to provide some of the many details and anecdotes about Oz for which Jack just didn't have time, and I hope you'll find them interesting and entertaining. Right now you're looking at the only actual location footage in the film. All the rest of The Wizard of Oz was shot indoors on MGM's Culver City, California sound stages, but those are real clouds. The studio discussed and discarded around 35 different ideas for these opening titles. One included black and white footage for the MGM Lion, a switch to color for the film title, and then a return to black and white for the rest of the credits and the Kansas sequences. Special effects wizard Buddy Gillespie actually photographed a large glass ball filled with white liquid. The title was painted on the top of the surface, and this ball was dropped from the rafters of MGM Stage 14 to a floor covered with black cloth. The finished film was run in reverse so that the ball appeared to form out of the splash and then travel toward the camera, coming to a stop with the title before the film lens. Of course, Wizard of Oz has a long television history, too, and when it was first shown, it was shown uncut. When commercial demands made more inroads on its running time, NBC and CBS began editing portions of the picture. One of the first things to go was this dedication. Now, of course, the film is shown unedited because it's a national treasure under the Film Preservation Act of 1988. The music you're hearing is Schumann's Happy Farmer. There's a lot of classical pop and folk music of the era in the Wizard of Oz background score, all put together by Herbert Stothard of MGM's music department. The Wizard of Oz was Judy Garland's seventh feature film in just over two years, and she'd appeared in six short subjects between 1929 and 1935 as well. Her star was well in the ascendancy when Oz went into planning stages in late 1937, primarily because she'd been such a hit in MGM's Broadway Melody of 1938, singing Dear Mr. Gable, You Made Me Love You. And she was developing a following through radio appearances and personal appearances as well. Oz producer Mervyn Leroy had been a Garland fan since her first feature, Pigskin Parade, in 1936. Arthur Freed, the associate producer of Oz, had been a part of Judy's career at MGM since her first audition in 1935. Both envisioned The Wizard of Oz as her stellar vehicle, and the property was purchased with her in mind, the songs and script were written for her. There is that popular legend that The Wizard of Oz was going to be made only with Shirley Temple. Well, the idea of using Shirley Temple was a very brief, uh, barely few-day consideration. Temple's own studio, Fox, wouldn't let her out for the amount of time it would take to make The Wizard of Oz, and even Temple's talents were not of the scope required for Dorothy Gale. More as a curiosity than anything else, uh, maybe for publicity's sake, at least two other actresses were rumored in the running for Dorothy, Benita Granville and Universal's Deanna Durbin. For years, producers have been talking about bringing The Wizard of Oz to the screen, long before MGM got started. In 1936, Marsha Mae Jones of These Three was declared the ideal Dorothy. Even earlier, Samuel Goldwyn had purchased The Wizard of Oz as a vehicle for Eddie Cantor. The Broadway veteran would have been cast as the Scarecrow, with W.C. Fields as the Wizard, and Goldwyn imagined his Dorothy as played by either Mary Pickford or Helen Hayes. Miss Pickford was 40 in 1933, and Miss Hayes was 33. Along with this laser package, you're getting a continuity script of the rough cut of The Wizard of Oz. If you're following that along at any time when you're watching the film, you'll notice that a little scene was just deleted where Hickory, the farmhand played by Jack Haley, starts to show Dorothy his wind machine to ward off cyclones. He talks about it as a machine with a real heart, and that foreshadows his role as the Tin Woodman. It was scriptwriter Noel Langley's idea to create counterparts for Dorothy's Oz friends on the Kansas farm, an idea he'd gotten from... A Mary Pickford picture called Poor Little Rich Girl, made in 1925. Noel Langley was the fourth of 14 scriptwriters who wrote and or tinkered with Oz, but his was probably the most substantial contribution of all. Victor Fleming is the director of credit on the picture, and he did shoot most of the film, but these Kansas scenes were the last ones photographed, and they were filmed by King Vidor when Victor Fleming was sent from MGM to Selznick Studios to save Gone with the Wind. 
someday they're going to erect a statue to me in this town. Well, and don't start posing. King Vitor loved the chance to put some movement into Over the Rainbow. He felt that all musical numbers prior to that in movies, especially solo numbers, had involved just having the star stand there and sing. So when you see Over the Rainbow in this next sequence, you'll realize that he's working very hard at giving Judy Garland some movement during the course of the song. Even so, when the studio executives viewed the finished Wizard of Oz in its first sneak previews in 1939, they thought it was unseemly for an MGM performer to sing in a barnyard, and they also felt that the song slowed the plot of the picture and that they needed to have it cut out. With typical self-deprecatory humor, Judy herself later remembered that the MGM powers that be felt that, quote, it takes up too much time with that little fat girl singing, close quote. The songs for Wizard of Oz were written by Harold Arlen, music, and E.Y. Yip Harburg, lyrics. They jumped at the chance to do the picture. It had originally been thought that Jerome Kern might write the music with lyrics by Ira Gershwin or Dorothy Fields. But Kern was recovering from a minor heart attack at this point and wasn't able to take on the scope of work that Oz would require. So Arlen and Harburg went to work, delighted at the chance to prepare a film score that would be integrated into the story and action of the film. There had been a few Broadway shows and a few movies like this prior to The Wizard of Oz, but Oz was going to be innovative in carrying forth the idea that the songs would either further define the characters or move along the action of the plot. From the moment she sang Over the Rainbow in The Wizard of Oz, Judy Garland had a theme song. Through the war years, through her concert years, her television career, she could never finish a performance, especially a live performance, without the audience requesting over the rainbow. Margaret Hamilton was third choice to play the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. You've already heard about Gail Sondergaard in the Haley documentary. But Arthur Freed's first choice for the part was character actress Edna Mae Oliver. At that point, the Wicked Witch was almost going to be a comic, cantankerous villain, as opposed to a real evil threat. The plot changed, they brought in Sondergaard, she didn't want to appear as an ugly witch, and Margaret Hamilton only gained immortality as Miss Gulch and the Wicked Witch. Mae Robeson and Sarah Padden were among the actresses considered for the role of Aunt Em before the part went to Clara Blandick. In the Oz script as it exists, Aunt Em is written as an almost snappish woman sometimes and, and not very compassionate to Dorothy Gale. Unfortunately, one scene that was deleted from the shooting script just before the film went into production showed Aunt Em in a scene just before the tornado where, upset over Dorothy's sorrow at losing Toto, she vows to go after Miss Gulch and rescue Toto, quote, if I have to massacre the sheriff and the whole Gulch family to do it, unquote. Charlie Grapelin was always first choice for Uncle Henry, but he announced his retirement during the long shooting schedule of Wizard of Oz before they ever got to the Kansas scenes, and Harlan Briggs was considered for the part instead. Then Grapelin decided to come out of retirement and play the part after all. As I mentioned, the Kansas scenes were the last ones shot for the Wizard of Oz. The picture was not shot in sequence, obviously. Victor Fleming first began with the scarecrow cornfield scenes, went on to the apple orchard, the tin man scene, the cowardly lion scene, the events in the poppy field. Then he went to the Wicked Witch's castle, to Munchkinland, then to the haunted forest for the attack of the winged monkeys, and finally all the scenes in the Emerald City, then into Kansas, when, as I mentioned, King Vidor took over the final three weeks of shooting. In the bottom right-hand corner, you can see Toto's doghouse. Above it on the table is the picture of Dorothy and Aunt Em that'll be instrumental when Dorothy now goes off in search of a life of her own and runs into Professor Marvel. On the wallpaper of Dorothy's room, it's hard to tell, and this is probably why the reference was cut out of the film itself, but those flowers on the wall are supposed to be poppies foreshadowing the poppy field adventure and in a couple of lines of dialogue you'll find in your continuity script Professor Marvel when supposedly reading Dorothy's mind asks about the poppies on the wallpaper in her bedroom. Frank Morgan, Professor Marvel here, had at least five roles in the film. One reason Ed Wynn, Mervyn Leroy's first choice for the role of the wizard, turned the part down was that the script when it was shown to him only included the role of the wizard in the Emerald City and a five-line appearance as a Kansas doctor at the very end of the film. Writers Florence Ryerson and Edgar Allan Wolfe developed the additional showcases for the actor who would play the part. At one point, he was even to appear as a black-faced boot black during the Emerald City Wash and Brush-Up Company sequence. 
Among others rumored for the role of the wizard before it went to Frank Morgan were Charles Winninger, Victor Moore, Hugh Herbert, Robert Benchley, Wallace Beery, and W.C. Fields. Why, it's just like you could read what was inside of me. Take a look at the jacket that Frank Morgan is wearing. The legend has it that this was a coat taken off a rack of second-hand clothing brought into MGM for use in any picture it would be appropriate. Morgan and Victor Fleming picked this jacket for Professor Marvel, and one day when Morgan turned out the inside pocket, he found the name L. Frank Baum sewn into the lining. And Baum's widow, who was still alive and living in Hollywood at that point, said in disbelief that the jacket had indeed been made many years before by a Chicago tailor for her husband, the man who wrote the Oz books. In the underscoring coming up, that kind of Egyptian motif, you'll hear a little bit of foreshadowing, also provided by Herbert Stothart and the MGM Music Department, little traces of the song Merry Old Land of Oz, which of course Frank Morgan sings later on in the picture. One of the little idiosyncrasies of The Wizard of Oz, like any film, you notice he never does return the photo of Dorothy and Aunt Em. He kind of tucks it behind him when he looks into the crystal. All right, now you can open them. We'll gaze into the crystal. The Wizard of Oz would not be the only opportunity for Judy Garland to work with Ray Bolger. They later appeared in the MGM film The Harvey Girls and split the bill at the Las Vegas Sahara Hotel in 1962. Judy and Bert Lahr never really worked together again, but... He was an odd member of her audience at the Palace Theater on Broadway when she reopened there in 1967. And there's a wonderful story about the party after the concert at El Morocco Hotel where he led her out to the dance floor and every other dancer cleared away so that they could watch Dorothy Grown Up and the Cowardly Lion reunited almost 30 years after The Wizard of Oz. The only other opportunity Judy would have had to work with Frank Morgan came a decade after Oz in MGM's film version of Irving Berlin's Annie, Get Your Gun. But she became too ill to finish the picture and had to be replaced by Betty Hutton. And by the time filming began again, Frank Morgan had passed away and the role of Colonel Buffalo Bill was filled by Louis Calhoun. On our supplement to this laser disc, you're going to see some extraordinary special effects footage of the tornado, the raw footage that was used to be cut into all of these Kansas scenes. At that time, the whole process of creating the tornado will be explained as well. Right there, where Uncle Henry goes looking for Hickory, is another moment, one of those scenes that was cut, where Hickory is working with his wind machine that is supposedly to ward off tornadoes and storms just like this. The tornado scenes are here being done in rear process work with miniatures of the farmhouse. This film would then have been projected behind the actors, along with the wind machine and all the other effects, to give the effect of a real Kansas twister. The tornado footage was so effective in The Wizard of Oz that MGM reused portions of it again in 1943 in the film Cabin in the Sky, starring Lena Horne and Eddie Rochester Anderson and Ethel Waters, and in High Barbary in 1947 with June Allison and Van Johnson. Dorothy's delirium, as it's known, was originally a much longer scene. There was more footage of the cyclone outside her window, which we will show you in the supplemental section of the disc. There was more dialogue as she talked to Toto about her predicament being blown up into the air. Al Frank Baum's original Oz story actually brought the tornado into the plot by the third page of the book. There were no farmhands, there was no Miss Gulch, there was no danger of losing Toto. Dorothy was just a little girl who lived in Kansas with her aunt and uncle and whose Kansas farmhouse was actually lifted by a tornado to the land of Oz. At the end of her adventures, the magic shoes bring her back safely to Kansas. MGM was afraid that a literal fantasy like that wouldn't be palatable to audiences in 1939. That's why this whole Kansas framework was affected. You've already seen Dorothy's dog Toto subject of a long talent hunt by MGM. The role was finally cast with Terry, a female Cairn Terrier trained by movie animal trainer Carl Spitz. Terry wasn't the only Toto in the picture. At one point, she was injured when one of the Wicked Witch's guards inadvertently stepped on her, a stand-in play Toto for several days. And supposedly, a stuffed animal was used during the lengthy periods required for testing the enormous amount of stage lighting required to film in the early Technicolor process. This is the moment of the film that took audiences and critics by surprise and by storm in 1939. It was at this point that The Wizard of Oz probably was first regarded as history-making and as a film that could potentially change popular entertainment. It wasn't the first Technicolor film. There had been earlier Technicolor motion pictures. But the idea of contrasting Kansas 
with the land over the rainbow in color, was first inspired by Al Frank Baum's book. Although, as I said, the tornado takes Dorothy away almost immediately in the book, Al Frank Baum managed to use the word gray nine times in those couple of pages to describe Dorothy's surroundings and her aunt and uncle. It set up the song over the rainbow when Yip Harburg was looking for a peg on which to handle the transition of Dorothy's emotions from Kansas to Oz, and certainly gave MGM the inspiration to do the Kansas scenes in black and white, although wash them for the 1939 release in that warm brown chocolate sepia tone that you've seen here in this restored version. The Munchkinland set was 90 feet high and designed by MGM art director Cedric Gibbons to one-quarter life scale. He decided that Dorothy's idea of a land over the rainbow might involve giant toadstools and mushrooms and anthills and flowers. You saw the Art Deco lily pads in the duck pond. One of them actually turned up in Tarzan Finds a Son, one of MGM's next pictures. Billy Burke was the third actress discussed for the role of Glinda the Good Witch. Fanny Bryce, the Broadway comedian, was an MGM contract player, and the part was first planned for her. Then Noel Langley decided that British comedian B. Lilly would be right for the scatterbrained, lightly laughing Good Witch of the North. But Burke was at MGM. It was a part similar to those that she'd enjoyed on the stage, and she became the amalgam of L. Frank Baum's Good Witch of the North, and his Good Witch of the South named Galinda in the Oz books. Actually, Galinda in the Oz books is about 30 years younger than Billy Burke. But the screenwriters decided to put the parts together, to simplify the story. So what the munchkins want to know is, are you a good witch or a bad witch? But I've already told you, I'm not a witch at all. Witches are all Gilbert Adrian did all the costumes for The Wizard of Oz. The only area, the only costume on which he seemed to stint was Billy Burke's. It's a beautiful dress, but it's a remade gown originally worn by Jeanette McDonald in MGM San Francisco three years earlier. I've never heard of a beautiful witch before. Among the many anecdotes and legends that spring up around films as famous as The Wizard of Oz is one that Billy Burke didn't do her own singing here in the Munchkinland segment. That's just not true. A singer named Lorraine Bridges came in and also recorded the same songs. But the takes used in The Wizard of Oz were those made by Billy Burke. In fact, she did 14 versions of this song, and this is the 14th take that they finally chose to use in the finished picture. From the minute Billy Burke starts singing here in Munchkinland, there is a solid six minutes of songs, dances, and rhyme dialogue. Arlen and Harburg put it together, and they were probably inspired by an outline and a series of similar numbers prepared several months before they came to the project by MGM's musical genius, Roger Edens. In the background and all around, you're seeing 124 little people, actual midgets brought to MGM from all over the country to participate in The Wizard of Oz. They ranged in height from 2 feet 3 inches to 4 feet 8 inches. And MGM originally had hoped to have 300 little people for the sequence. When they could only get 124, they realized that would have to do. But in the background, you'll occasionally see figures waving out windows and standing in doorways. Those aren't midgets. MGM decided they would fill up the background of Munchkinland with eight or ten real little children. These two Munchkins are the only ones whose own voices you hear in this segment. All the other solo Munchkin lines were spoken by respected character voice actors in Hollywood at the time, and the Munchkin group singing was dubbed months after the sequence was shot by the St. Joseph's Choir. The choir voices, and all the character voices, were sped up on a special film machine prepared for that purpose by MGM's ace sound man Douglas Shearer, brother of actress Norma Shearer, and the film's vocal arranger Ken Darby. The take Judy does there to the footman is similar to takes she'll do later on in the scene after Coroner Meinhardt Robbie sings his verse and during the approach of the Lollipop Guild as she looks at Munchkin Mayor Charlie Becker. The Munchkins have very fond memories of Judy to this day. The surviving little people remember her Christmas present to them in 1938 as the film shot these sequences in December. She autographed pictures for each of them personally and provided a huge 20-bond box of candy which she sat in the middle of the Yellow Brick Road and shared with them during a break in shooting. 
That scroll that Meinhardt Rabbi unrolled a moment ago has one curious circumstance behind it. If you look at it closely, it gives May 6, 1938 as the death date for the Wicked Witch of the East. Well, that's exactly 19 years to the date after L. Frank Baum, the author of the Oz books, passed away. Those Munchkin costumes are made out of heavy felt, specially dyed by the MGM costume department to provide this rainbow of colors that you're seeing. But the Munchkins couldn't go to the bathroom without help manipulating those costumes, and Bert Law remembers a Munchkin nicknamed the Count, who was, in Lars' version, never sober, and at one point actually fell into the latrine and couldn't get out. He had to be rescued. Now, of course, we're getting ready for the first appearance of the Wicked Witch of the West, but that's Margaret Hamilton's stand-in who makes the pop up through the trap door in the stage floor. Now again, referring to your continuity script, you're going to find several of the Wicked Witch's lines that were originally filmed and then deleted, because in sneak previews she was just too terrifying for the audiences of the day. The ruby slippers, under discussion in a moment, were originally silver slippers in Bob's Oz book. Ruby, of course, photographed better in Technicolor, and it was scenarist Noel Langley who made the change. There's a foolish theory blown way out of proportion in recent years that says that Baum's original book was a parable on the populist movement of the late 19th century and that MGM ruined Baum's political commentary on the gold and silver standard when they changed shoe color. There's no truth to the theory. Baum was just writing, as he said, to please a child without any ulterior motive at all. But lately, that populist theory has been discussed as if it were fact. There were actually seven pairs of ruby slippers that we are sure of today, created for The Wizard of Oz. One pair, sold at the MGM auction in 1970, is a permanent part of the Smithsonian Institution collection in Washington, D.C. Another pair is on exhibition at MGM Disney Studios in Florida. There's a pair at a private gallery in St. Louis. Two private collectors have pairs in Los Angeles. And actress Debbie Reynolds supposedly has a test pair of Arabian toad ruby slippers that Judy Garland only wore as they were briefly under consideration for the film. There's one other pair she wore in the original shooting under Richard Thorpe, but the design was changed when Thorpe was taken off the picture, and those haven't surfaced as yet. Margaret Hamilton finally did get to wear a pair of ruby slippers. Thirty years after The Wizard of Oz, director Robert Altman cast her in a small part in the film Brewster McCloud. She dies almost immediately in the picture, and when she has passed away, there's a long pan shot till it comes to rest on Margaret Hamilton's feet. And there, with a song from The Wizard of Oz playing on the film soundtrack, you finally see Margaret Hamilton in her own pair of ruby slippers. It's also kind of nice to hear a sort of revised studio attitude about Judy Garland and some of the Wizard of Oz dialogue. Even though it is Margaret Hamilton calling her My Little Pretty, that's a big change from the attitude a lot of her on-screen compatriots had to take to Judy in scripts for Everybody Sing and Love Finds Andy Hardy. In Everybody Sing, Billy Burke plays Judy's mother and actually refers to her as an ugly duckling. In Love Finds Andy Hardy, she's subject to the beauty of Anne Rutherford and Lana Turner when Mickey Rooney prefers to spend time with them instead of her. But as I said, The Wizard of Oz was designed as Judy's show, and they were going to make the most of it for her. This whole opening segment of Follow the Yellow Brick Road was a last-minute addition to the scene. Munchkinland was already in rehearsal and being shot when Arthur Freed and Victor Fleming decided that a setup number for the Munchkin chorus of We're Off to See the Wizard was needed. Arlen and Harburg went to work and came up with these few lines of lyrics and music that lead directly into the song. We're Off to See the Wizard was eventually chosen as the theme for the original Oz advertising campaign. You'll notice, though, each time it's done in the film by Dorothy, and then Dorothy the Scarecrow, the Tin Man and the Lion, the choreography, that Yellow Brick Road skip step, is slightly different. As the scene fades in a moment on Munchkinland, and they go to the reverse shot of Dorothy walking into the horizon, the Munchkins today remember that when they filmed that bit, the Munchkins were waving Judy Garland into a blank wall. So many of the rich backdrops for Oz, like the one you're seeing now, were originally done as four-foot-by-four-foot crayon paintings, matte paintings they were called. The paintings were filmed separately and then printed together with the image of Dorothy, in this case, leaving Munchkinland, so it seemed very seamless, just part of the magic that MGM and film studios were apt to put together for pictures like this. L. Frank Baum ultimately wrote 14 Oz books, and there are 40 in the series at all. 
other authors continued the books after his passing in 1919. And he did create a second Yellow Brick Road in one of the later books, but in his stories they didn't exactly intersect. This, of course, is the now famous sequence where the length of Judy Garland's pigtails keeps changing. The scenes were originally taken by Victor Fleming in November 1938. They were the first he shot, actually, when he became director of the picture. Then, five months later, the same scenes were retaken, almost the last thing shot for the film. There were some slight dialogue changes, and there was an extended, new, choreographed routine of Ray Bolger's If I Only Had a Brain, staged for the dancer by Busby Berkeley, who had just come to MGM. That dance routine was dropped from the finished picture, but it's recently been discovered, and you'll find it here in the supplemental section of the Laserdisc. Only straw. The character makeups for the three male principals of The Wizard of Oz gave MGM a lot of trouble. The studio was determined that audiences were going to recognize Ray Bolger, Burt Lahr, and Jack Haley. After all, Paramount had made a version of Alice in Wonderland in 1933 with an all-star cast, but nobody had been able to see the stars because they were obscured by huge character masks and outsized papier-mâché heads. But the MGM stars of The Wizard of Oz were subject to much makeup experimentation. Again, in the supplemental section of this disc, you'll see early conceptions of the Scarecrow, and depending on your generation, you'll think that he looks either like Boy George or Edna May Oliver, or maybe the Mummy of Oz. The final makeup you're seeing here was actually a thin, baked mask out of rubber, glued daily to Ray Bolger's face each day, and then painted to resemble burlap. You heard a moment ago his line about some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. Originally, a similar line was scripted for Dorothy. She was to meet the scarecrow and look at Toto and say, You see, Toto, the difference between here and Kansas is that here, if you've got no brains, they stuff you and make you a scarecrow. But back home, Uncle Henry always used to say that if you had no brains, you could always go to work for the government. That scene with the crow generated a lot of havoc on the set during Fleming's first day. The crow flew into the set all right, but when it took off again, it broke the thread that attached it to its off-camera trainer. The bird flew up into the eaves of the soundstage, and it took the trainer all day to coax the bird down. Shooting had to be suspended for the duration. The song, If I Only Had a Brain, was not a new song. Actually, Arlen had written the melody for the Broadway show Hooray for What? He and Harburg had composed those songs two years earlier. The song had been cut, it was called I'm Hanging On To You, and Harburg simply supplied three new sets of lyrics, one for the Scarecrow, one for the Tin Man, and one for the Cowardly Lion. Now that's where Ray Bulger's dance was supposed to be. He remembers that the executives at MGM told him that the number was just too much fantasy. And when you see it with him flying up in the air and battling a giant pumpkin and bouncing off the rails of the fence, perhaps you'll agree. The picture was too long by 1939 standards, though, and the main reason the number was excited was probably just one of length. Bulger remembers, though, that in the middle of shooting, the crew pulled him up to the top of the soundstage for the moment when he is to be blown up into the air, and once he was up there, secured the ropes, called out lunch, and walked off the set and left him hanging. Yes, that's true. The Wizard of Oz managed to play some European and foreign countries at the beginning of World War II. It was particularly popular in Great Britain and Australia. And during the World War II campaign in Africa, when a lot of soldiers were marshalling their forces, and had come from Australia, journalists at the time remember that the soldiers went marching into battle singing, we're off to see the wizard. It was kind of their own war cry and rally cry, reminding them of home and reminding them of happiness they'd had just before they went off to war. As we come into the apple orchard, the next scene you'll hear a little bit more of that subtle underscoring, the old standard in the shade of the old apple tree. The principal apple tree is voiced by a character actor named Abe Donovich. But there was a publicity story as well about an unlikely film actor who hung around MGM for years waiting to be called for any part in a movie. He wanted very much to be seen on the screen, even as an extra. Well, so the story goes, MGM finally did call him as an extra in The Wizard of Oz, but he played the second apple tree and nobody ever saw him anyway. You'll notice as we go into the scene, there are several birds of varying sizes roaming the set, perched in the trees of the orchard and the forest. They were all rented from the Los Angeles Zoo Park at the time of the filming to make this interior set look like an exterior. Now, their presence on small TV and video monitors over the last 25 years has confused a lot of viewers. 
The birds are very small in the background, a little bit blurred. And this has given vent to rumors that either a stagehand is moving around in the background and got caught in one of the takes that was used in the film, or better yet, that a dead munchkin could be spotted hanging from one of the forest branches. Rest assured, they're just birds. They're not munchkins or stagehands. One of the cranes, however, did chase after Ray Bolger's straw stuffing, and the actor had to be taken away and hidden until the bird could be restrained. As you've heard in the Haley documentary, Jack Haley, Jack Haley Jr.'s father, came into the Oz picture virtually overnight, replacing Buddy Ebsen. He wore a slightly cut-down version of Buddy Ebsen's Tin Man costume, and Fleming filmed this sequence for three days before someone realized that Ebsen had been shooting scenes from later in the script in The Witch's Castle, after the Tin Man had visited Emerald City and been polished and shined. As a result, Haley was wearing the wrong costume. He needed to have this wardrobe taken out, chemically treated to create rust, and three days of Oz footage shot with Jack Haley had to be scrapped at an estimated cost of $60,000. This was one more time of several when MGM tried to close the production down for good. They didn't think it was ever going to be finished. In the original Oz book, the Tin Woodman was also a victim of enchantment by the Wicked Witch of the East. As a real flesh-and-blood woodcutter, he fell in love with the witch's housekeeper, and this so enraged the witch that she enchanted the woodman's axe. First it cut off his arms, then his legs, then his head, then it split his torso. But, as nothing ever dies in the land of Oz, the woodchopper each time went off to visit his local tinsmith, who replaced each lost part until the entire man came to be made of tin. Chopping that tree. You heard about Suddenly Buddy Ebsen's allergy to the aluminum dust in his makeup, replaced for Jack Haley with aluminum paste. Haley didn't have any breathing problems with his new makeup, but it did get into one of his eyes, creating a severe infection that kept him out of the picture for a week and at home in a darkened bedroom under medical treatment so as to prevent serious damage to his vision. Go ahead, bang on it. Another extra on our supplement will be Buddy Ebsen's recording of If I Only Had a Heart, made before illness took him out of the Wizard of Oz movie. But when Jack Haley came in to re-record Buddy Ebsen's solo, MGM film editors kept out the one line of the song that Buddy Ebsen was not responsible for and inserted it here into Jack Haley's version. When it comes to the line, Wherefore Art Thou Romeo, that's the voice of Adriana Casalotti, a year and a half earlier, she had been Walt Disney's heroine, Snow White, providing the voice for that character in the Smash cartoon feature, whose success actually spurred on production of The Wizard of Oz. Miss Casalotti was paid $100 to come in and recite those words for use in The Wizard of Oz. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? As I mentioned, The Wizard of Oz was one of the first Technicolor pictures. And because of the fantastic sets and the height and width and depth of those sets, they required so much lighting that MGM technicians at the time remember lights had to be borrowed from studios all over town. The lights were so hot, as a matter of fact, that a fireman had to be on the set at all times so as to make sure that the lights weren't heating the set pieces so much that they'd catch on fire. There's a very popular Wizard of Oz special effect that's compressed air and talcum powder devised by the effects geniuses at MGM for the Tin Woodman. The finale of his routine doesn't involve a special effect. This is an old vaudeville stage trick. It's a foot lock where the performer's feet are locked to the stage floor so that he can slide either direction and not fall over. You'll notice as Judy Garland goes chasing Jack Haley at the conclusion of the number now, the oil can falls out of her little wicker basket. Oddly enough, through the magic of the movies, when we come to the very next scene, the oil can is right back where it belongs. Oz book fans will notice a famous Oz character in the background. That's L. Frank Baum's Sawhorse, whether MGM knew it or not. The Sawhorse came along in the second Oz book, The Marvelous Land of Oz, and was one of the major Oz characters throughout the succeeding series. Watch Judy Garland. She had a legendary sense of humor, and there were several moments in the film where she almost cracked up at the acting and the comic and dramatic technique of her co-stars. This is one of those moments right here. She doesn't quite break, but it comes awfully close. This is the moment where an animated swarm of bees was just about to fly out of the sleeve, the collar, and the tin funnel of the tin woodman. You notice this moment is a little bit fuzzier in image than anything else in the picture. That's because when the beehive scene was cut right from here, 
the MGM film editors had to dupe that film and print it in reverse so that the Scarecrow, Dorothy, and the Tin Woodman would end up in the right positions for this succeeding scene. You weren't around when I was stuffed and sewn together. If you listen closely as the trio goes off to see the wizard, you'll realize you're hearing the voices of Judy Garland, Ray Bolger, and Buddy Ebsen. Although Jack Haley re-recorded all the Tin Man's solo lines in the various group numbers, the studio decided to use the existing voice tracks for the moments all the characters sing together. When it came time to cast the part of the Cowardly Lion, MGM was at first unsure how the role should be played. They considered using a real lion, a trained lion, and dubbing an actor's voice in. Then there was an early subplot in the Oz script that had Kenny Baker, the tenor, cast as a Prince of Oz, who was to be transformed into the lion by the Wicked Witch of the East. That would mean that Kenny Baker couldn't marry the beautiful ruler of Oz, Princess Betty. She, in turn, would then be free to marry the witch's son, Bulbo. Princess Betty, played by soprano Betty Janes, was supposed to sing opera in the Emerald City as a contrast to Judy Garland's hot little Kansas jazz numbers. Luckily, all of these ideas were dropped and Bert Lahr got the part. However, Freed used Betty Janes and the opera versus jazz routine with Judy in her next picture, Babes in Arms. Bert Lahr was probably the most uncomfortable of all of the performers in The Wizard of Oz. That lion outfit of his was made of two real lion skins sewn together and stuffed with mattress-like padding. The finished effort weighed more than 50 pounds and the actor was soaked between takes, had to be peeled out of the suit and blown dry with hair dryers, cooled down and mopped up before he could go on again. This isn't Bert Lahr, by the way, that's his more athletic stand-in doing the entrance but Lar himself dubbed in the growls later on. Lar, like Bolger and Haley, was a veteran of the stage, and he'd had enough vaudeville and burlesque and Broadway experience to bring all of that to bear on the part of the Cowardly Lion. Put him up, put him up! When The Wizard of Oz opened in August 1939, Burt Lar probably got the greatest set of reviews of any member of the cast. Audiences were delighted to see his outsized Broadway personality encapsulized in this kind of character. If musicals had been taken seriously at this point in film history, Burt Lahr probably would have gotten at least an Academy Award nomination as Best Supporting Actor for The Wizard of Oz. It probably also wouldn't have done him much good. As he said when he went back to Broadway the season after Oz, I'm leaving Hollywood. How many lion parts are there? As the sequence goes on, we're going to see another instance where Judy Garland almost breaks up. The scene where she slaps Burt Lahr in the nose had to be taken again and again before she could get through it without laughing at the cowardly lion. Victor Fleming finally had to take her behind the forest tree and slap her to bring her out of her giggles. When the shot was completed successfully, Fleming muttered to his friend, the onset screenwriter John Lee Mann, how upset he was that he had to hit Garland. And he muttered to Mayan, I wish you'd hit me in the nose. It had been broken once already. But he said, I wish you'd hit me in the nose, just in retribution for having to do that to her. Judy Garland overheard Fleming's comment, came over to her director and said, well, I won't hit you in the nose, but I'll kiss you on the nose. And she proceeded to do just that. Garland always said that Fleming was the favorite director of her early years in films, that she learned more about filmmaking from him than anybody else. Oddly enough, it was another director, George Cukor, who had come in for a week between Richard Thorpe and Victor Fleming and helped Garland realize even more of her potential for the role of Dorothy. Her original makeup, as you'll see in the supplemental section, involved a lot of baby doll makeup, a bright blonde wig, a very frilly party dress. She looked kind of like Lolita Gale of Kansas. She had also been directed in what George Cukor later termed a fancy schmancy way, and he took her aside and said, just be yourself. The wonderful thing about this picture is that you are this literal little girl from the Midwest in the middle of all the Oz oddities. These first lines of If I Only Had the Nerve come from an alternate musical take. Lar originally recorded a lyric that went, oh yeah, it's sad to be admitting I'm ferocious as a kitten. You'll notice that the showcases for these three men were scrupulously divided throughout the film. Bolger was on screen first and longest, so his solo song was the shortest. Haley came in later, but had a full song and dance. And Lar here only gets half a chorus of If I Only Had the Nerve, but later on he gets a showcase in If I Were King of the Forest. Now as the quartet takes off, you'll see brief, visible proof of Judy Garland's Jack Parshow anecdote. 
Certainly her comments to Parr were anything but vindictive and rather designed just to be entertaining, and certainly her co-stars had no intention of upstaging her on the yellow brick road. But the road is very narrow and the bulk of those costumes make it easy for them to close in and either push her in front of them or in back of them, thus prompting Fleming's comment the way she remembered it and brought down the house on the Parr show. That little monkey with Margaret Hamilton is Nico, although he's never actually called by name in the film and his credit at the end of the movie has puzzled viewers for many years. The role was played by actor Pat Walsh. He was a veteran vaudeville animal impersonator. My power will be the greatest in Now in Baum's original Oz book, the poppy field does exist, but it's the opium in the flowers themselves that conquers the travelers. The witch has nothing to do with it. In the book, the scarecrow and tin man are able to carry Dorothy to safety, but the lion is impossible to move until they enlist the aid of thousands of field mice who pull the cowardly lion out of the poppy field on a large cart. There are somewhere between 20 and 40,000 poppies in that poppy field. It took 20 technicians a full week to implant them in MGM's stage 29. You don't see it, but there's a wonderful camera track right through the foreground of the whole field, and that enables the camera to pan across to the forest and then come back again when the tracking shot is needed of all the characters running through the poppy field. There's a wonderful alternate take of that moment in the 1955 Oz reissue trailer in the supplemental section of this disc. We're now coming to perhaps the most famous scenic image from The Wizard of Oz. There's There it is. And that beautiful site was also a four foot by four foot crayon matte painting. This matte painting was special, however, in that there were all kinds of little pinprick holes in it so that lights could be shined through the background and make the Emerald City glisten. When you read your continuity script, you'll discover there's a little scene back at the witch's castle cut right out of the middle here of the poppy field where she looks in her crystal and realizes how successful her magic has been and asks for the golden cap to summon the winged monkeys so that they can bring her Dorothy's ruby slippers. This was again one of those instances when Margaret Hamilton was just too terrifying and too threatening and Fleming felt it was essential to edit the moment out so as to minimize her impact. When we cut we back do? to Margaret Hamilton in the tower in a few moments, though, you'll see that she's holding the golden cap that she never asked for because that scene was deleted. This is probably Bert Lars' most famous line coming up. Unusual weather we're having, ain't it? <laughs> and it was his idea to interpolate it in the Oz script. He later said that Victor Fleming wasn't sure that it would play very well, but Lar convinced him it was going to be a big laugh. The four characters were originally supposed to leave the poppy field to a reprise of We're Off to See the Wizard. At the last minute, this song, Optimistic Voices, was substituted. The actors probably worked to a demo track sung by Arlen and Harburg when they shot this scene. The voices of the debutante's girl chorus were recorded later. Meanwhile, any tune detectives out there can hear strong traces of the vamp to New York, New York in the Optimistic Voices' main melody. This is another one of Buddy Gillespie's special Oz effects, done in miniature. In the supplemental section, you'll see a, a raft of special effects worksheets that Buddy had to fill in every time a scene like that was planned for Oz, and at length he describes how the shots were accomplished, how much they cost, and just how he affected the magic of Oz. Most of what you see right there is a matte painting. Only the entranceway and gate doors of Emerald City were actually constructed. The interior of Oz was the largest set created for the picture, some 2,800 square feet, with most of the city's effects made of blown glass. MGM used between 300 and 350 extras as the citizens of the Emerald City. Costume designer Gilbert Adrian fashioned the costumes for the Emerald City woman in a kind of a high-styled 30s derivative manner. The men were designed to look like wooden soldiers. Now you're about to meet the horse of a different color. That was another original script conception by Noel Langley, although he created the animal first as a red, green, and purple striped beast who talked. In a later draft, he added the cabbie to do the dialogue for the animal. The coloring, of course, was a challenge for MGM. They couldn't paint a horse. There was the ASPCA to deal with. So what they did was use grape, cherry, and lemon jello powder, 
mix it in tubs as big as a bathtub, and paint the three horses. You may have noticed that the purple horse seems less a trooper than the other two. Even on camera, he is intent on sampling himself. The 1930s Art Deco feel for the Emerald City continues right through into the wash and brush up company. You notice right now that the bulk of the Tin Man's costume makes it impossible for him to get down by himself. He has to be helped. One of the many musical signatures of the Wizard of Oz score is the use of counterpoint, where one song is harmoniously played against the melody of another. You'll hear that here briefly in a little bit of Over the Rainbow under the underscoring for Judy's chorus of the Merry Old Land of Oz. Now as we move to Bert Lahr, you'll find Donna Mason, the young woman on the extreme left. She was the assistant choreographer of The Wizard of Oz, taught the munchkins how to dance, and she was pressed into service for this scene by choreographer Bobby Connolly when the woman who was to have appeared didn't show up. Now just as in the scene a few moments ago with the witch circling her tower, this next Wicked Witch scene was also done in miniature. They used a tiny little miniature witch on the tip of a pen in a flat pan of cloudy water. Her entire message was scripted, Surrender Dorothy or Die, and signed WWW, which is how Margaret Hamilton would autograph pictures for fans in later years. There was a whole different series of close-ups of the witch on the broom, photographed from the rear, and these were done by Hamilton's stand-in, Betty Danko. Margaret Hamilton herself refused to have anything to do with smoke or fire after the Munchkinland accident. It was a wise move on Hamilton's part. During Danko's take, the broom actually blew up and sent her flying through the air and crashing to the stage floor. The stand-in had to be hospitalized. The continuity script gives you a little bit more dialogue here between Frank Morgan in his fourth characterization as the guard. The script will explain why at the beginning of this sequence his mustache was pointing up. Now, it's pointing down. You can actually see a moment of him changing the mustache in black and white in the supplemental section of the laser disc. There's a brief test scene of Frank Morgan included in an international film trailer. His costume is different, but the mustache bit is intact. Now, as much as Over the Rainbow was written to showcase Judy, If I Were King of the Forest was Bert Lahr's show-stopping moment in the film. It's also notable as the moment in the film where the fishpole wire which manipulates his tail from the catwalk above the set is most apparent. Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg had written special material for Burt Lahr for an earlier Broadway show, and they knew very well how well the actor could demonstrate an ability to puncture holes in pretension, most notably the pretensions of those posturing, recital, and classical singers. Legendary baritone John Charles Thomas once had to leave a New York theater. He was laughing so hard in the middle of one of Burt Lahr's renditions of a number like this. Between his gasps and chokes of laughter, Charles could only shake his fist at the stage and blurt out, you son of a bitch, as he staggered up the aisle. Oddly enough, If I Were King of the Forest turns out to be the last song in The Wizard of Oz. There was another production number filmed, two reprises of earlier songs filmed, but they were all cut before the picture was released. There's a little brief musical bit of If I Were King of the Forest that was deleted from the release print, and a finale for the number which never even made it into the continuity script. You'll be able to hear those tracks on alternate audio channels of this laser disc. Now watch, you'll see Judy Garland as she walks back up toward Bert Lahr. After she turns around now and comes back to pick up his train, she briefly trips over the carpet that has been laid for him to walk on. This is the second time Judy almost falls down in The Wizard of Oz. You may remember the moment when they all leave the poppy field. She trips then, too. It's kind of indicative of her attitude to such moments in her later TV work. When once asked if she wanted to redo a song that contained a fluffed lyric, she merely shrugged to her producer, Oh no, leave it in. And then she added mischievously, At least it's honest. It's the flag on the mask! The first few years it was shown, CBS felt that a star host was needed to set up the picture. Well, for the premiere telecast, they had Burt Lahr himself introduce The Wizard of Oz. And as Judy Garland was then busy at the Palace on Broadway, she sent her 10-year-old daughter, Liza Minnelli, over to introduce the picture with Burt Lahr. I mentioned that the tail end of this number was cut out. You'll be able to see the cut right here, because the pose Burt Lahr is in at this moment is a lot different from the pose he's in at this moment. These scenes in the Emerald City were among the last directed by Victor Fleming before he went on to go on with the wind. P. 
People have over the years wondered at the choice of Fleming as a director of The Wizard of Oz. He was known as a man's man, as was pointed out in the Haley documentary. His best friend was Clark Gable. But in addition to wanting to make this picture for his own two new infant daughters, Victor Fleming also had a remarkable reputation around MGM as a savior of troubled films. And certainly by the time he got to The Wizard of Oz, after Norman Torog had gone on to another film, Richard Thorpe had been replaced, and George Cukor had done test changes and gone on to another project as well, The Wizard of Oz was in need of a savior. Fleming was the ideal choice. As a result, Victor Fleming is the director of record on two of the most important pictures of all time, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. This sequence is another example of the matte painting technique. Only the exact center of the hall and the flooring was prepared. All those vaunted and arched ceilings were painted crayon effect. There was editing in this scene as well, as the approach to the wizard's throne room was originally longer, more ominous, and much more frightening. These upcoming shots of the head of the Great Oz provide another example of the sterling achievement of the MGM optical department. Originally, a sculptured head was planned for this sequence, but it eventually proved unwieldy. So, film of a heavily made-up actor was substituted instead. It may even be Frank Morgan in yet another incarnation. It's certainly his voice, and the sync seems to be too accurate to be dubbed in. There are no surviving records that confirm or deny this rumor, but the film of The Head of Oz was double printed, printed on top of the film of Garland and Company in the throne room to achieve this effect. When the screenplay for The Wizard of Oz was being written, the final scenarist considerably condensed this throne room audience with The Great Oz. In his book, Baum originally had each of the characters visit the wizard in turn. Each time he appeared in a different disguise. The great head appeared to Dorothy. A beautiful lady appeared to the scarecrow. A monster appeared to the tin woodman. And a ball of fire appeared to the cowardly lion. In each case in the Oz book, the wizard demanded that one of the four kill the wicked witch of the west before he'd grant any of their requests. Now that command is softened somewhat for the film. He doesn't ask for them to kill the Wicked Witch of the West. He only asks for her broomstick. One of the original subplots of Noel Langley's early script involved the Wicked Witch in an attempt to conquer the Emerald City. That was back when both Miss Gulch and the Wicked Witch had a son. In the case of the Wicked Witch, she wanted to put that son, Bulbo, on the throne of Oz. One of the songs that Harburg and Harlan almost had to write for the picture was a number called Death to the Wizard of Oz. Originally, Lions and Tigers and Bears was planned as a full musical number. There was going to be a song about the horse of a different color and the gates of the Emerald City. That kind of evolved into the merry old land of Oz. Now this, of course, in this next cut, is not Bert Lahr jumping through the window. It's again a stunt double. From the wording on the sign, it appears that Margaret Hamilton's castle has evidently been a home for a whole flock of witches. There's been some more tightening, very apparent in these scenes. Here you see the characters come in carrying a revolver, a cane, a net, a giant wrench, and a container of witch remover. The latter was recently auctioned off for $22,000. But it disappears now in a brief bit of special effects that wound up on the cutting room floor. You never see it after this initial appearance, although there's no explanation in the finished film as to exactly what's happened to it. Now, of course, it's Jack Haley himself who flies into the air at this moment, but when the shot cuts away, it's his stunt double who comes crashing down to earth as the Tin Woodman. We're about to come to the scenes where the wing monkeys first take flight. There were only about a dozen actual actors playing the parts. They were cast from some of the midgets of Munchkinland and some professional jockeys from the Los Angeles area. The judicious camera setups and hundreds of rubber miniatures make it appear that there are many more than just a dozen wing monkeys. Two of the gentlemen were injured when their piano support wires snapped during flight and they crashed to the set floor. They had to be hospitalized as well. You just heard Margaret Hamilton's reference to a little insect that she sent on ahead of the monkeys. That, of course, refers to the jitterbug number, the $90,000 production routine that MGM spent five months rehearsing and filming. It was cut out of the finished film because executives feared that a jitterbug routine so associated with the 1930s might eventually date The Wizard of Oz. It seems now that the number wouldn't so much date the picture as appear inessential. An upbeat, happy song in the middle of all this dramatic tension just doesn't fit. That's Judy Garland's stand-in you just saw being carried off by the winged monkeys. Witch's Castle is another example of the matte painting technique. 
You'll notice Margaret Hamilton's fingernails. There were no such things as false nails back in 1938-39, and makeup designer William Tuttle actually cut pieces of film celluloid out to use as false nails for the actress. Unfortunately, every time she grabbed the metal rings on the wooden doors of her castle or went to grab anything quickly, the nails flew off in a shower of celluloid. It was just one problem that the actress had. Her green makeup stained everything, including the food she tried to eat at lunchtime. And her witch's cackle, so fondly and frighteningly remembered, managed to break any number of sound tubes at MGM when they were recording these actual scenes for the film. You're listening to Mendelssohn's scherzo in E minor for Toto's escape. This is a restaging of the scene. Richard Thorpe originally photographed it with the witch's guards on the other side of the drawbridge. The witch's hourglass is another Oz prop that was recently auctioned for tens of thousands of dollars. Another such hourglass, there were several created for the film, was used by MGM for publicity for another of their 1939 films on borrowed time. I can't wait forever to get those shoes! One of the musical numbers included in the supplement for this laser disc is Judy Garland's live on the set rendition of the reprise of Over the Rainbow, accompanied on piano by MGM's Roger Edens. It includes a different lyric to the bridge of the song, and it was recorded live on the set because Garland's emotional rendition would have been impossible to pre-record and then lip-sync afterwards. To achieve this effect, film of Aunt Em and the Wicked Witch was projected into the crystal ball where a small mirror reflected it onto a translucent screen. The dissolve of Clara Blandick into Margaret Hamilton was a shot that Margaret Hamilton remembers even I was appalled at. Along with the flight of the winged monkeys, this is probably the most intimidating, horrifying, and memorable moment in The Wizard of Oz to generations of frightened children. One of Judy Garland's biggest disappointments when filming of The Wizard of Oz was completed in March 1939 was that trainer Carl Spitz refused to sell Toto to her as a personal pet. After six months together, she and the dog had become close friends, and the actress hated to give up little Terry. But Spitz knew that Terry had a full career ahead of her in films, and wasn't about to part with such a successful animal. You're not seeing Lar, Bulger, and Haley there. Those are all stand-ins. In fact, the Cowardly Lion's costume doesn't even fit very well. Now we go back to the actors themselves. I, I hope my strength holds out. I hope your tail holds out. That's the kind of wisecrack prepared by John Lee Mayen, the scriptwriter who worked on set with Victor Fleming through most of the shooting of The Wizard of Oz. He liked perking up the script with vaudevillian kind of dialogue. He often went to Jack Haley for this kind of material, and then, as Mann put it, he'd set it into L. Frank Baum kind of language so as not to break the fantasy of the film. According to L. Frank Baum, the citizens who live in the western section of Oz are called Winkies. Now, the witches' guards aren't actually named that in the film, but that's indeed what they are. There were 20 of them playing guards in the MGM film. One of them was a UCLA football player, a build required to carry around those 50-pound costumes and headdresses. Vocal arranger Ken Darby utilized the opposite approach than that employed for the Munchkins to give a lower, more sepulchre sound to the tone of the Winky Guards. You can see even Toto got into the act here. He's got one of the vanquished guards' tassels in his mouth. There's no secret subliminal message in the chant of the guards. Over the years, people have tried to graft all kinds of meanings onto those nonsense syllables. What they're really saying is O-E-Ya, E-O-Ya. We're getting some more classical music underscoring in a moment with excerpts from Night on Bald Mountain. There! This was another sequence that Victor Fleming staged differently than his predecessor Richard Thorpe. As you'll see in the Thorpe stills in the supplement, that director kept the guard costumes on, Lar, Bolger, and Ebsen, throughout this whole sequence through their run back down the stairs and their capture by the Wicked Witch's guards. That chandelier, made of metal, actually fell on the guards during the Thorpe attempts, but now it can only be seen through the castle door hanging in a different part of the Witch's palace. You're going to see in a moment one of the more spectacular Oz matte paintings. You'll notice even the river below the castle is glistening, but the only part of the set was actually built was the interior of the tower and these two passageways leading to it on either side. 
Several more of Margaret Hamilton's lines were deleted from the rough cut here. The actress also remembered later that when it came time to torch the scarecrow, Victor Fleming encouraged her to light him as if he were a cigarette. Even though he was wearing a different scarecrow suit for this segment, chemically treated to repel fire, Hamilton needed five takes to affect the suitable sinister attitude. When it was finally completed successfully, she fainted dead away. Melting the Wicked Witch was one of Buddy Gillespie's easier tasks. Margaret Hamilton stood on another elevator platform. The bottom of her costume was tacked to the ground around the outside of the platform. She's wearing a significantly larger hat just for this sequence to make it look like her head is shrinking. Dry ice was placed under the costume, and the air coming up the elevator shaft billed out the costume as she sank away. Even the winky guards are directed to lower their spears to add to the illusion that the actress is melting away. That's character actor Mitchell Lewis playing the head of the winky guards. As this sequence ends, there's a cross fade, and if you look closely, you'll see the guards begin to chant, The Wicked Witch is Dead. This actually led to the last musical number of the film. The deleted triumphal return as the quartet carries the witch's broomstick back to Emerald City. This original track, never before released, and accompanied by stills of the number, can be seen in the supplemental section of this disc. We've done what you told us! As in L. Frank Baum's book, Toto's the one who actually exposes the humbug wizard. Baum had him knock over a small screen. Here, they've actually attached the hem of the curtain to Toto's collar. This enables the dog to pull aside the curtain and reveal the great and powerful Oz. On the wizard's console, you'll briefly see a bunch of flowers. This was a bit scripted and filmed, but cut, wherein the wizard tries to distract Dorothy and company from their requests by producing flags of all nations and a bouquet of flowers, sleight of hand magic tricks. This scene was originally planned as a musical number for the wizard, but lyricist Harburg felt it could be better affected in dialogue. Probably the biggest inside joke in the whole Wizard of Oz script is Langley's written response for the Scarecrow once he receives his diploma. Some of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side. The mathematical formula that the Scarecrow puts forth with such enthusiasm is incorrect. How can I ever thank you enough? Well, you can't. As this presentation sequence was originally scripted by Noel Langley, but lyricist E.Y. Harburg had a great deal to do with its final shape for the screen. As a matter of fact, Harburg helped polish the script throughout, affecting smooth transitions into songs, emphasizing the philosophies that Arthur Freed felt were important to hit home in The Wizard of Oz. In the original Baum Oz book, the Scarecrow, Tin Woodman, and Lion each visit the wizard individually to have their requests answered. The Oz screenwriters condensed it to this one scene. They also changed each of the gifts the wizard presented to Dorothy's friends. The Scarecrow didn't receive a diploma. He received a mixture of bran, pins, and needles, which the wizard poured into his stuffed head. The bran enabled the wizard to tell the scarecrow he now had brand new brains, and the pins and needles were to prove that the scarecrow was sharp. The lion was given a drink of a mysterious liquid. When asked what it was, the wizard replied that it was only liquid, it wouldn't be courage until it was inside him. The Tin Woodman in the Oz book also received a heart, but it was a plush velvet one and not a clock. Frank Morgan's makeup here as the wizard is different than any other he wore in the film up to this point. You only see him as himself, as Professor Marvel. Here as the wizard, his makeup has been built up to give him yet a different appearance. Everything above the wizard's head in that balloon is a matte painting. So are the tops of the towers of the Emerald City. The sentiment of Dorothy's goodbye to her companions begins very early on in this scene. You'll have noticed that she just pats the scarecrow goodbye and he kisses her on the hand. You'll remember it's Toto who caused all the trouble in The Wizard of Oz by chasing Miss Gulch's cat. Here he's about to do the same thing and throw another wrench into the works of the plot. The actress holding the cat is starlet Lois January. Here the Tin Woodman absently thinks he's tightening the rope that holds the balloon tethered to the ground. Instead, he's actually letting it go. When it came time to film this scene, director Victor Fleming approached actress Billy Burke and said, Billy, I want you to just float from one pedestal to the next. Burke said she felt she had to later apologize for touching ground at all. 
Galinda's appearance here to wrap up this scene eliminates the last several chapters of the original Baum book. The author had the characters go in search of her and they encounter fighting trees, a dainty China country, a giant spider, and a mountain of people without arms called hammerheads. Dorothy's farewell to her companions is one of several shots in The Wizard of Oz that Victor Fleming directed in one long continuous take. This gave Garland and her co-actors the chance to sustain emotions over a long period of time. As she says goodbye, you'll notice some more of that musical counterpoint. Over the Rainbow is played over the melodies of both If I Only Had a Brain and Home Sweet Home. MGM had their first preview of The Wizard of Oz for critics about a week before the original premiere in 1939. One of the critics wrote the next day that when the lights came up in the screening room, many of the critics were still in tears, a very unusual state of affairs when reviewers usually didn't even share or exchange their opinions on the work they'd just seen. The original montage of scenes when Dorothy returned home was at first much longer. It's described at length in the continuity script. At the end of the credits opening The Wizard of Oz, you saw MGM's dedication to L. Frank Baum's original story and its comment that time has been powerless to put Baum's kindly philosophy out of fashion. That was a wonderfully promotional attitude to take, but MGM couldn't realize that more than five decades after they wrote those words, the same theory would hold true for their film of Baum's story. Time has been powerless to put the entertainment value, the emotional value, the sentimental value, the humor, the music, and the magic of The Wizard of Oz out of fashion.